Welcome to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast series in which we discuss contemporary bioethics issues with Cleveland State faculty and other professionals. Hi, I'm Dr. Tony Nicoletti. My guest today is Dr. Paul Ford. Dr. Ford has been at the Cleveland Clinic since 2001. He is currently director of the Neuroethics Program, a staff member and former director of the Center for Bioethics, and an associate professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. He has done over 1,800 ethics consultations during his time at the Cleveland Clinic and lectures frequently outside of the clinic on a range of ethical issues, including issues in neuroethics, clinical ethics consultation, and transplantation ethics. He has many publications, including several books, such as Contracted Complex Ethical Consultations, Cases That Haunt Us, which he edited with D.M. Dudzinski from Cambridge University Press, And I would also, or should also mention that Dr. Ford was a guest on episode one of the podcast where we discussed the role of clinical bioethics in the hospital setting. So welcome back, Paul. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come and talk with you again. I enjoyed the first uh, conversation we had. Yeah, and I I should also mention, we actually talked about a case from the book uh, title that I mentioned. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the physician-patient relationship, or we might say the health professional uh, patient relationship, so as to include other health professionals who work on teams with patients. And we're going to start by kind of fleshing out and talking a little bit about a what I think is kind of a classic article on this topic, um, the four models of the physician-patient relationship. And it's Ezekiel and Linda Emanuel, and it's from September 1992, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And what we're going to do is uh, talk like I said, a little bit about um, the different models that they have in here. And I know there were other articles written at the time, but I feel like these, this is a good jumping off point because I think this article captures some pretty broad ideas about what people may have in mind, um, you know, when we think about the interaction between health professionals and patients. And just as a little bit of background, the article itself was written, you know, in 1992. So coming off of the era of paternalism in medicine and an interest in fleshing out what it means to respect patient autonomy. Um, And also kind of in the background here is that idea of, uh, or I would say maybe they even talk a little bit about it, shared decision-making in medicine and the idea that the physician and the patient reason together or reach a consensus about the patient's best interest rather than either the physician or the patient being the exclusive decision maker. Does that kind of square with your, a broad conception of what shared decision making is on your view or you wanna add anything to that? You know, I I think uh, this article does a very nice job of trying to um, give us a way of talking about what shared decision making might look like differently than mm-hmm. what uh, what the um, sort of gut reaction is of many of our colleagues in uh, in healthcare. I, I think this uh, this article has provided me um, an opportunity to really enter into these conversations with a lot of different healthcare providers. Uh, just last week, I used it as a way to talk with palliative medicine trainees mm-hmm. um, and staff they uh, very much appreciated the idea that different kinds of interactions with patients may have different elements of these four models. So Mm -hmm. I I think this is a very valuable uh, use of um, 
of this article to really boil down. It's accessible, but it's deep. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. And so you would say, I always thought it was maybe a nice way to get at what would be a concrete application of shared decision-making. And you would say that the uh, residents or the physicians you were talking to kind of saw it that way as a good start to thinking about that. You know, if shared decision-making is premised on what patients value and want and need, then these uh, four models certainly cover a spectrum that would be respectful of that, opposed mm -hmm. to that one model of these four is really what the ideal shared decision-making is in all cases. Right. Yeah. And so you would say that the different models could have different applications at different times or with different encounters. So the first model they talk about is the paternalistic model. And this is the traditional model in which the physician presents selected information to the patient and the patient follows the advice of the physician. And one of the things I like about this article is the way that they kind of flesh out also what would be the conception of the patient's values and the conception of patient autonomy. I don't think most people think about the paternalistic model in terms of patient autonomy, but it's interesting because they do have that model here. And I do think even in the article, and I think people would say that even if this model itself is contentious, it does have at least some limited application in emergency situations or, you know, some other situations and maybe broader than we tend to recognize. But anyway, so they say under this conception, um, the patient's values are thought of as being objective and shared by physician and patient. And the conception of patient autonomy is um, assenting to objective values. And so the patient passively accepts what the phys physician advises. So basically the idea would be that they both value health in particular is the value here, I would say. And they, even among your values, they would, I think, cause this is always a big issue with respect for autonomy is that people can value health, but they may prioritize their non-health related values differently than let's say the physician, right? So a medical treatment that may seem reasonable to a, the healthcare provider may not, when the person puts that up against other priorities that they have, they may value their health, but they value something else over and above that. And so they would choose not to have that medical treatment. But sure, go ahead. I say that's what, exactly what the paternalistic uh, model pushes back against, right? Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, and looking at health itself as being sort of intrinsically good, and so you express your autonomy when you pursue these objectively good or intrinsically good uh, values. And then this- And just, okay. I, I think that it's you pursue this physician, you pursue the emergency room, you pursue the hospital, because you're pursuing intrinsically good things. And mm -hmm. when you do that, then of course the doctor knows exactly what you need because the doctor knows that you need good health and he's in a, she's in a position to provide that, uh, the means to that good health. Right, right. Um, and, and like you said though, you're talking about it like in an emergency situation where you, maybe the person's unconscious. And so we would presume that the person needs that, but it can become more difficult in a one-on-one -on -one encounter 
Well, that, um, that's what uh, Emmanuel and Emmanuel are, are positing. The easiest way to think about this being legitimate is in those circumstances. Sure, right. I think we, we, we should talk a little bit once we get through these models as to whether their scope of kinds of decisions are the usual or actually what they say is the rare or the usual and what they're talking about is deliberative being the usual or actually more rare and unusual. Okay. Um, anyway, let's, okay, so yeah, we'll say what each of these models are. And all right, so the stark contrast to this would be the informative model. And under this model, the physician is basically a technician, right? A technical expert. Um, when I, and I'm using the word physician, but if I slip into that, we mean, we mean somewhat broadly healthcare professional or healthcare provider or healthcare team. But I actually do want to talk about that to what extent is the physician, it still has such a primary, um, you know, it's so important to the patient, a sick patient, that the role of the physician. And so it does seem to have a special authority, I would think. I think but I, I think that you have uh, these, these models are applicable even to the ethics consultant. Okay. And sometimes they're in a privileged role of um, not being under the stress of the decision making, of a gatekeeper of knowledge, of deeply influential. So uh, whether it be the nurse practitioner, the, the medical ethicist, the, anyone who's talking mm -hmm. about decisions that need to be made and laying out options or helping people to decide, mm -hmm. really I think this, uh, this is uh, relevant to their practice. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I was just saying when I slip into that, using the word physician, it, you know, because of that connotation that it has to people. Yeah. Um, anyway, just to, to finish under the informative model, uh, the um, physician is basically a competent technical expert. They're there to give you all the information, perform the medical procedures, answer any questions you have. But at least as they give the model here, the physician is informative um, physician is detached. They're not really getting involved in the patient's values or making any assumptions about that. And then on the other hand, the patient's values are thought to be defined, fixed, and known to the patient. So you have a pretty well-developed uh, person here. And the conception of patient autonomy under this model is choice and control over medical care. So I give you the information you take it, you apply it to your values, or you reason it out and make the decision about what you want to do with it. If you want to come back to me with more questions, I can do that. Um, then the interpretive model builds on that model. And in this model, uh, the person's, it, it's similar because the physician would be the competent technical expert. However, it recognizes that sometimes people's values are conflicting. Um, you know, people may not know exactly how their values apply in the situation. They may not even know how they prioritize them. Maybe they really haven't had to think about, right? They've been able to co-pursue uh, certain values. And now you're in this healthcare crisis or this healthcare situation, you haven't really thought about it. So in this case, they say the physician's role would be to be an advisor or counselor. Um, and so maybe engaging in conversation with a patient, trying to better understand, but also help the patient, right? You engage in a discussion to, for self-understanding on the patient's end so that you can figure out how each of these, maybe let's say you do a couple treatment options, how do each of these serve different values? 
And once we kind of figure that out and can kind of match them up, if we can do so that neatly, um, then you can figure out what the person should ideally do. And even they give a, the Emanuels have a, a case study here of a woman who has breast cancer and she's 43 years old. They give some facts about her personal life, like she's divorced recently, has gone back to work, maybe has a couple of children. And so in the example, the physician kind of helps her, gets a little bit more personally involved in, well, you're saying that you, you know, your health is very important. You wanna, you wanna be here for your children. However, you also have to make a living and take care of them. And the decision she has is whether to undergo after a lumpectomy, like a round of chemotherapy that may have a marginal benefit in terms of longevity. And I believe they, they kind of specified that the, even the science is a little bit um, not f fully clear about the benefit of that. So at the end of the dialogue, the physician tries to flesh all this out with her, it lines up her values with these options and then says, do I understand you? We can talk again in a few days. So you can see the more personal engagement there. And then in the deliberative model, which I, I don't want to forget to say, this is the one the Emanuels actually defend in the paper, which I think is interesting. And this one, similar to the other models, may be helping them out, but the physician in this case, it also has some correlation or some connection with the paternalistic model because the physician in this case, um, it says neither is the exclusive decision maker and the physician may recommend treatment in line with important healthcare values and may try to persuade the, the patient to undergo treatment or even criticize current values However, they will still clear of undue influence or coercion. Um, and so they do say that uh, rational persuasion's okay, but not, you can't try to manipulate them. Um, and then in this case, the patient's values are conceived of as being open to development and revision through deliberation. They actually say moral deliberation and patient autonomy is moral self-development related to medical care. And just really quickly, I, I didn't say in the interpretive model in that one, um, the patient's autonomy is thought to be to uh, be served by self-understanding relevant to medical care. And I just point that out because I think the interpretive model is kind of a nice concrete model that um, might help somebody to uh, apply a narrative. You know, when people talk about narrative ethics and trying to um, think about like what did the person value, what might they want, connecting the pieces of their life into a, a co coherent whole. I think the interpretive model is a nice application of that, but the deliberative model does take that to another step. And in the case study, they actually have the physician not only recommending one of the treatment options, but also just to stress the moral aspect of it, which I think you could lessen, and still this might be a little bit more defensible, defensible to me, he even tells her he thinks she ought to um, enroll in a um, study. And he cites as one of the reasons altruism, right? That she would be giving back to the women who have gone before her, and she would also be um, have the potential of gain, helping to gain information for women who come after her, people who are dealing with that after her. So any thoughts or do you want me to throw you a question? 
So the, uh, it, I think it's fascinating that the deliberative, particularly on that point about entering research, really pushes more uh, along the spectrum towards the paternalistic. And the way in which they're laid out in the, uh, the order of the, that they're laid out in the article is um, paternal, informative, interpretive, deliberative, because deliberative is where they end up thinking most of their interactions, so it should be involved. But I really like the very first table that, uh, that they present in the article because it lays out it really on a spectrum from informative mm -hmm. and then interpretive and then deliberative, which is really is a movement towards the final uh, paternalism. It's not by any coincidence that they use the uh, example of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, I know uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, um, practiced oncology, certainly before he uh, went to the White House as a provider in the Obama administration, as a, uh, um, as a figure there. Mm -hmm. uh, so cancer is near and uh, to him and of the ways in which he had to counsel people himself to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So understanding that lens suggests to you the kinds of decisions that are front of mind for him in the regular normal intercounters with uh, with patients, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that is the strength of this article in that it says all of these four methods are somewhere along the spectrum are appropriate in different scenarios. Right. Where I think they might get it a little bit wrong is where the majority of uh, of scenarios lie. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, we're guilty in clinical ethics on all those ethics consultations are places that are uh, often high stakes, intense, uh, but there's lots of medical decisions that are not of that kind. You go for a, a simple fracture of your finger or you, uh, you have a, a minor infection or these kind of things that don't take a lot of guidance or deliberation mm -hmm. that in fact, um, many people do really want to go to a local uh, minute clinic and just get the uh, the healthcare provider to tell them what's the standard treatment for curing this small infection I have. Right. And just give me the options. And um, or even sometimes it's simply listen. I don't know anything about this infection. What's the usual customary? Is there one that's that's used? And and all I want them to say is this is the this is the the standard. This is what you're going to have. So. Right. I think the paternalistic even is more common than what, uh, what folks uh, sometimes want to admit because mm -hmm. we get focused on those life-changing, life-altering, um, you know, few dis medical decisions we make in our life that are high stakes. But at times you put too much burden on me to force me into a decision-making process or a relationship that I don't want with you maybe. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe I don't want you to be my counselor, uh, whereas other times I need you to be flexible enough and know when I really do need your extra advice or maybe even your extra nudging to get me to do the thing that I, in the end, know is the right thing for me, but it's a hard thing to, to decide on whether I have my foot amputated or not because of uh, uh, gangrene. Maybe right. I need that extra pressure. Maybe even sometimes I just need it made for me. Mm -hmm. um, but each situation and scenario deserves to be uh, carefully considered. You know, one thing that we, uh, uh, I missed completely 
and this is 2020 in the middle of a COVID pandemic right now. And so that's probably why I noticed that they, they say at one point, well, there is a fifth yeah. kind of relationship. And, and I think I skip by it every time that Me I talk too. this is that, you know, I, I just dismiss saying, oh, that, that's no, and the fifth was the um, um, instrumental. Mm -hmm. And uh, now that we have that real di discourse, at least for this year of, um, how do we allocate ventilators if we don't have enough to go around to save people? What's the instrumental value of saving those that can be doctors and help? What's the instrumental value? They quote, uh, point back to some of the uh, infamous studies of Tuskegee and um, Willowbrook, uh, Willowbrook, Willowbrook uh, where uh, they were using people to an ends for others' benefits. Um, without telling them. So it even takes it further than paternalistic towards the patient, it's paternalistic towards the society. Mm -hmm. um, we need to keep that in mind that every once in a while, potentially it's in emergency medicine research or in the middle of a hurricane or a pandemic, that these relationships uh, we need to carefully consider. And I like just really quickly, I also don't want to kind of skirt over the idea that, yes, the paternalistic model is sometimes still employed in these routine encounters. But I think that is also where there were um, red flags put up about what was routine. Was that also, um, you know, like I, I think of gynecology or something and for what people classify as a four C-section or, you know, and being careful there that what looks like an objective and shared value, uh, you know, maybe you have to take a step back. But I also worry about a uh, different kind of violence that we can do to people is to force them to make uh, a decision or to be in a relation, kind of physician-patient relationship that they uh, reject and don't want to be in. I mean, almost 30 years later, you will would have thought, this would have been settled and there would have been very little variation. Um, email from a, a high school friend just uh, this week sort of highlighted, wow, I can't believe what differences there are when I go to different doctors about the way they approach communication and decision-making. Right. Um, and this kind of uh, pendulum that has swung often in medical school towards the more uh, informative model, actually. So the very youngest of doctors often um, want to employ this menu where I just lay out the menu and they, and they choose. You know, there's uh, a number of cases, in particular one that I have in mind that just very generally, where the patient looked at three providers and it had been laid out to her that, um, that she had an elective procedure that could be life-saving um, not an imminent, not emergent, but after a long conversation, she turned and said, well, I want to hear what you think I, I should do. Or in fact, if you were me, what would you do? Right. And the first, first physician took very much the informative, uh, sort of tact. I'm sorry, I'm not you. Uh, I can tell you all the risks and the benefits, and I can tell you what the procedures are and, uh, when you can get it. But, um, I'm sorry, I'm not you, I, I, I can't say. Mm -hmm. And that was very much informative. And she turned to him and said, well, you're sort of leaving me in a lurch. You know, that, that's not helpful at all. 
and the next one, you know, had a little bit softer informative, but say, but said, you know, the, this is, uh, I've known you for a while. These are legitimate choices. I'm not going to influence you, but you might think about uh, uh, some of these, uh, these considerations, but really it, it, it's your choice. Mm -hmm. So not quite interpretive, but moved sort of on that spectrum. The third provider said, well, everything that you've said to me suggests that you really ought to get this done now because of what you've told me in these kinds of situations. You've mm -hmm. just said that you value you know, safety and getting things done and that you're nervous and you have more anxiety, hence you ought to go ahead and do the, uh, the intervention now. Right. Um, that sounds like what, what I would do if I had your values, right? Which is uh, between the interpretive and deliberative. Mm -hmm. right? It's trying to influence her towards something that the third provider knew was being recommended. Right. Um, that outside the patient room, all the providers said, this, this patient really should, ought to accept this intervention soon. But then, you know, coming into the room, they really felt it wasn't their place. Um, except for that third uh, third provider. So you, would you say at that point that, it, what do you think about that, that if outside the room, this is the conversation, and then inside the room, whatever you might think about whether they should go in and say that, at the point at which the person is asking, what should I do? Would you, I, I mean, are you suggesting that it is morally, I don't know if you want to say obligatory, but maybe you haven't quite met your duty if you at that point aren't candid or I don't know, because I can also understand the physician's reluctance to do so. So I don't want to put a heavy hand on it, but it's interesting that the way you set it up, it was explicitly stated. And then now you come in and she's asking that very question and you don't want to say. So, so I, I deeply respect those, uh, those clinicians in um, believing that there was a initial first response that, that they should stick to. Uh, where it gets confused is when the patient sort of signals to you, you're not being disrespectful by giving me your opinion. You're not being disrespectful. In fact, you're doing me harm by not giving me the guidance that I need or the decision maker. And equally, I could have imagined her say, I just want you guys to decide. I just want the three of you to decide, figure out what's best for me, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go along. And mm -hmm. I think that would, uh, should be respected also. If, right. uh, so the, the hitch is you should have a standard way in a usual way but be flexible that when that patient had made her, she made it clear that I need, I want, my desire is to have the autonomy of the kind where uh, you really give me your opinion, you tell me what it, it need to do. I've had a good discussion um, that sometimes it just is shirking our responsibility if we don't come down and, and bite the bullet and say, this is what, what I would do. Right. Um, so a couple of paces back, you, when you set up that scenario, you said that the, the third clinician at a certain point listening, it sounds like a particularly perceptive clinician. And so that's a nuance 
And so my, I guess my, my question is, is of course, like that develops over time, right? Talk about self-development. That's why I, I do have a, com- like a commitment myself to this idea of, you know, we can developing your expertise, but also developing your ability to perceive and, and maybe even moral development here, or I would say yes. But, um, you know, that, that's such a nuance to be good at that. And I think that might be even one of the criticisms that they discuss in the article, you know, just kind of going back to their, the way they discuss it. So that in the interpretive model, you could be putting a burden on somebody who those, if they just aren't perceiving it, right. Um, it could be difficult for them. And, and I, I, I would say maybe at a certain point, I, I would want to think they would develop this. But in some cases, you're putting a burden on them. I think one of the other places that they object to this model is you don't want somebody unwittingly, or maybe you do, though, because you suggested that it had a little bit of dollop of the deliberative model. But you have to be careful about unwittingly imposing your own values on somebody when it's not appropriate to do so. Um, I mean, the case you highlighted is not that, but um, you do have to be careful. It is a little bit of that potentially, right? Yeah. So we became aware in the room uh, that, uh, you know, a patient like that can have high anxiety and have difficulty um, making the decision that really is consistent with what she wants. You know, we all have fears and Uh, Many of us end up procrastinating and doing things that we really know are good for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's a dangerous line between trying to support us to make the decisions that are just hard, but that we need and respecting our right to make bad decisions, decisions that are, are against our overall interest. And so each time you're right, it's a subtle uh, balance of um, influencing and they, and the challenge I think with the Emanuel and Emanuel article is that they don't get into or highlight what the difference is of persuasion and coercion. Mm-hmm. There's a, many, yeah. many articles written on persuasion and coercion and, and I don't expect them to, but uh, it's a little bit glib of, as to say why the example they give isn't a kind of moving towards an inappropriate persuasion that could be considered coercion. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the uh, this is where the subtlety lies that develops over years. Um, but for some people, uh, it, it's easy to cross that in, in an inappropriate way. Uh, right. What are the safeguards, particularly for those who are vulnerable? And by vulnerable, simply are um, open to power differentials that uh, don't have proper safeguards. Right. Yeah. And I would even say that in that clinical encounter, depending on the person you are, even a pretty strong person is pretty vulnerable, right? Because this person now holds sort of the keys to the kingdom. They can, you, you know, you're looking at this as a person who can save my life. So we don't, you don't even have to get too, too far of a stretch of, you know, where that vulnerability sets in. And, and I, I do agree with you on the deliberate, I mean, in this deliberative model that it might not take a lot for that persuasion to become something more or something different that is bridging on morally inappropriate. And, and I mean, just using the example that they give, um, 
you know, if you have this physician here, and I think there's ways even to employ the deliberative model without being moralistic, but let's take the example that they give. At, you know, at this point that you have this physician who's supposed to be helping you now telling you that it would, you really should engage in the altruistic thing. I, that does not sit well with me um, here because now I'm, I could be wondering if this person's judging me if I don't do it or, you know, and, and given the, the network of things going on here, the complexity of the situation, um, you know, you don't want that. You don't want that person feeling that way. And, and this idea of moral self-development that they talk about is um, challenging, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's why I tend to lean towards more to the interpretive for my own practice mm-hmm. is that I really want to safeguard against, uh, uh, you know, the idea that somehow I'm more virtuous than others or uh, that I'm the one that uh, that knows how to, create the best moral self-development right. I can certainly help you understand what values that you have and articulate it and provide some guidance and, you know, counseling perhaps, but it is a different level of, uh, of challenge when you sort of put yourself out as uh, even more than that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that if the interpretive model could be a little tricky, you know, I think, I think even in the scenario they had there, they the in the example they they do make reference to something about the woman's appearance like you're something to the effect of she's newly divorced and maybe you don't want the disfigure i i can't remember and that was one that was one of those places that sort of raised my eyebrow that you know you'd have to be even careful in that interpretive model that you're not foisting or reinforcing a negative um value you know back to that person but then in this deliberative model, um, I do agree with you, like, for example, in feminist theory and other people talk about this relational autonomy theorists, they also do look at us autonomy as developmental um, and the fact that our autonomy develops not so much having the moral, the strong moral aspect that the example has. However, um, looking at the role, the way in which other people and even our communities can hinder or help us to develop our autonomy. And so, for example, if somebody is in an oppressive situation, they may choose against their best interest, right? Or, um, and so, you know, these theorists, like they'll try to make a distinction between authentic values and ones that have been sort of foisted on you uh, and that really aren't for your, you know, wouldn't help you pursue a good life. Um, you know, so I think they would have to even agree that to some extent, the deliberative model, I guess I would want to say should be an option if properly done or properly fleshed out. Now, um, we, prior to doing this, we had talked a little bit about, uh, this model and I was mentioning to you that in the case of um, Dax Coward, which itself, of course, would be a whole separate, you know, podcast, but Dax Coward is, you know, well-known burn victim who um, his informed refusal, this was like in the 70s, right, or early 80s, and his informed refusal was rejected. Uh, physicians treated him against his will. His mother was his surrogate, and they were listening to her. 
And, and part of Dax's problem was he was in excruciating pain, right? He said that the treatment was like torture. However, he also had really valued himself as an athletic person. He wanted to be a pilot. And he really just wanted to die after that because of the disfigurement. And I think he was blind. I don't know if he was fully blind, but he, of course, then also well-known, went on to live a productive life as a lawyer who defended people's rights. And there was this dialogue with him and um, another theorist, Robert Burt. And Robert Burt, he, he's, he wasn't the physician on the case, but he's defending something like this deliberative model. But in a way, it's sort of like your responsibility to yourself, to develop yourself, right? He's not talking about exactly about anybody outside of Dax himself. And he says, um, and I, I'd kind of like, I'd like to get your, your thoughts about this. Is that, can I read this quote here from Bert? It says, um, when you said you didn't want treatment, I think it's not only permissible, but imperative for the physician to say, why exactly not? Why have you come to that conclusion? Let's explore. And then he says that, imagine Dax at that point says it's none of your business and now Bert says it's permissible and essential for the physician to say, no, it is my business, not because I'm a doctor, but another human being who is necessarily involved in your life. We define one another in important ways. And while I can't define you, we have to negotiate together what our shared meanings are about and what it is that you want me to do or not do. And he does go on to say that in the, in the actual case that that Dax Coward um, kept saying things like, all I'll be able to do is sell pencils on the street or something. And, and Bert saying, you came to this with an old identity, the identity of somebody who was able-bodied and had a very clunky, non-realistic view of what kind of good life somebody could live, right, who is disabled. And, and that part I get, but what do you, like, what would you say about um, I think we talked a little bit about, and this goes back to this idea of persuasion versus some kind of manipulation or coercion. Um, he does say, come the end of the day, it is your decision, but when have we reached the end of the day? And, you know, potentially, if a physician is not careful, you haven't really reached the end of the day until the person basically just assents to what you're, you know, what you're saying. Um, I mean, obviously, this is heavy-handed. What do you? What would you say about it? You know, the uh, the thing that makes these the toughest are the uh, the incredible um, talent and abilities people have to adapt to new circumstances over mm -hmm. time and to accept them. And uh, so, many of the clinicians see people who initially believe they wouldn't have a valued life, and then later they realize that they've recalibrated their identity and their, their, their lives. So they have a view of that for the population, but they don't always have the view of what that life is for the each individual person or the suffering and pain that is being required of them to get to that, uh, that other endpoint. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's easy to be enmeshed in a way that uh, sort of you highlight the adaptability, but you also highlight what does it mean to uh, be a clinician and how much of being a clinician is about who you are um, and uh, how much is it about you? In general, we think of healthcare as being 
about the patient or mm-hmm. even about society and health. Uh, there's not nearly as much explicit attention paid to what's the effects and impacts of the individual, right? We see this as a, the sort of second trauma kind of literature where um, those who uh, observe and help in a trauma uh, help people. So a big a natural disaster, uh, the people are primarily traumatized. They come to an emergency room and the, the physicians and nurses all see this and this horrible. And in some ways they're traumatized in a different way, mm-hmm. right? So how do we keep the clinicians respectful of patient choices at the time of who they are and well enough so that they're not uh, post-traumatic stress or traumatized such that they leave the field because they can't um, bear to see yet another person uh, life destroyed in what they would might see as unnecessarily lost life or unnecessary lost function. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of, of sacrifice of an individual or how do we set up systems that we allow them not to give up some of who they are um, and give them the necessary relationships that they need in order to thrive as clinicians uh, by not unduly burdening the patients and the families either with uh, relationships they don't want, I just want to come in and get an aspirin and leave, or don't badger me into to accepting this life-sustaining treatment because I just want palliative medicine and I'm, I'm done. I would just want hospice. I don't want another line of chemotherapy stop badgering me, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you, you very nicely point that some people will continue to say the patient doesn't understand. Some clinicians will, the, the patient, if they just understood, then they would do, enter the research trial that has a uh, 0.5% chance of, uh, of being life-saving. If they just understand, so I'll try one more time. It's not uncommon for the ethics consultant to get involved in either clinical care or research when, uh, when the clinician says, you know, we've had 10 conversations, three teams have had these conversations and it's clear that they don't understand. And you go and you meet with them and it turns out they understand perfectly, but they don't agree. Mm-hmm. They have different priorities in their life, priorities that are hard for uh, people outside of their context to understand, but deeply held convictions of who they are and what they are unwilling to endure um, and it's too easy for me to say, you should put up with the burn unit uh, because I'm not going to have to be there and uh, um, have those uh, kinds of experiences of, of suffering. Um, so you're right. It, uh, it's a tough balance of finding systemically what we can um, implement, uh, how we keep our healthcare providers um, mentally, physically, emotionally well and don't abuse and make uh, patients feel like they've had violence done to them and trying to do good. Mm-hmm. So um, you did answer one question I was gonna ask you about the role of bioethics in this. And then what about education and ongoing education? How, I guess, I, I guess maybe I would wanna say, so if a physician came to your resident um, and you know, was looking for advice about like they saw this article and which one of these should I choose, right? What's your bottom line advice to that person or a healthcare professional? I shouldn't say physician. For any healthcare provider, I think there's at least two kinds of uh, 
kinds of things to ask. The first is, what is the nature of the choices that are you are usually faced with with your patient? Right? Are you in an outpatient dermatology clinic? Are you in a intensive care unit that is a COVID positive unit or in a emergency room? Right? That's going to guide you to say what your default um, approach might be. The second thing is ask patients. Right? You don't even need to to be subtle about guessing, you can ask some simple questions that establish how it is they want these decisions made, mm-hmm. right? You may by law still need to tell them all the risks and benefits, but don't worry if they say, I just want you to tell me what the right thing to do is, doc. You know, what, what, do, you, what do you think I, I should do? I, I don't know any of this stuff, right? I think there's lots of us who want to turn to the, the physician and just say, you decide, I'm you know, confused and uh, I could take all the time to do the research, but you're the one who knows it. Uh, so ask, because sometimes you're surprised if you just ask people whether, uh, what kind of uh, um, thing they want. Uh, recently, uh, there was a family member who um, wasn't getting along with, with uh, some of the doctors. And I said, well, find out if that family member has a particularly good relationship with one of the other uh, uh, healthcare providers that they've had so far. And the, uh, the young clinician said, well, how do we tell? How do we know? You know, what they've only known a few people, you know, and I said, well, you know, you're underestimating the kind of um, vibe people give off, this kind of trust that can be engendered with just very simple things. Um, the way you find out is just ask. Mm-hmm. And they came back later and said, you know, I asked and there was a person who cared for them for one day. We were able to have that person create a bridge of trust because they had the kind of relationship they needed. Uh, So ask and do establish which kind of model that you think is initially best to try out and then take the lead of your your, your patient. Yeah. You know, I think the other important point um, is to to recognize I think the other point is to recognize that uh, we have so many unconscious biases Mm -hmm. and systemic biases. And so it's not enough to say, well, I will recognize how I'm influencing. We also need to be actively evaluating which of the kinds of things um, are biases in our, uh, in our approach. You uh, uh, mentioned something earlier that made me think of the, um, what you mentioned earlier made me think of, the conversations as a clinical ethicist I have with uh, those that are willing to donate part of their liver uh, to someone while they're alive, right? You can donate a lobe of, of your liver and part of it will regrow, and, but it, there is substantial risk. Uh, but the traditional way, although they're doing them more uh, non less invasively, but the traditional way is to have a big scar in your, uh, in your abdomen, just a huge, ugly scar. Um, and you know the the social societal stereotype um, that I have to catch myself is that there are lots of men that will not want a scar uh, in addition to that default we might think that women are the ones who uh, right a stereotypical societal view maybe that women would be be not wanting scars but men who you know it'll make them look tougher but mm-hmm. but that's a inherent bias that I've had to protect against to, to mention it every person because for a variety of reasons, they may have different 
ideas of, uh, of uh, perceptions of what um, the value or the harm of a, a big scar would be. Mm -hmm. So these are things that we can't just passively say, well, I'll safeguard against my, uh, my desires. We need to continue to ask which things are I'm wrongly assuming uh, about a person because of stereotypes I have because of biases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, we put maybe putting the same burden and just thinking about healthcare professionals as a whole, but you also have to consider that you have younger physicians who they're so swamped with trying to become experts in their fields. And even when you said, it sounds so simple to say, well, just ask them if they have someone that even itself maybe doesn't come to mind because they're putting so much pressure on themselves in terms of just their role as a, a, a um, technical expert, I, I guess use the informative model, that they're just not in that mode, right, where they've developed that. I, I was just even thinking about when, we, when I started teaching, right, you were still so much trying to get the information right for your students. You, you, it was very clunky to think about at that time. You know, that's really swamping your intellectual resources to also try to develop your teaching style or, you know, I mean, you were doing that. You have to be doing all these things at the same time, but some of that comes with experience and, and yeah, making mistakes, which, you know, I'm sure is very tough to them to think about. Um, and some of what you mentioned there about continuing to remind yourself of biases and things like that, that also does come with experience, right? So as you mature, maybe the interpretive model is more effective or, you know, I mean, you have to try different things, but some of these may work at different times, not only with different patients who ask, but at different times as well. I agree that the clinician will develop better skills at this as they move along. The, um, the sneaking suspicion I have is that if a clinician early on in getting to know their patient asks the question about how decisions are made, that it actually will be a time saver. So mm -hmm. even though you're going to sacrifice two minutes, three minutes of a 15-minute meeting, and you say, I don't have time for that, uh, I have a suspicion, like many communication uh, choices, that this saves you in the long run. People are very worried about non-adherence to medicine and other things. And if you're in the wrong kind of frame of decision-making, and you're trying to be paternalistic, or you're trying to be just informative, and it goes against their uh, way of being in the world, and then I think you run a greater risk of them not uh, following the care path that either you decide for them or they decide with you or that they decide on. Um, so it's about developing new ways of interacting, but also developing the habit of just plain asking right. how these decisions are best made so that it's not continually left unspoken and you're left with this, this festering uh, uh, resentment or mismatch. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and just sounds like what you're saying too, is the earlier you yourself become interested in this and develop some flexibility in how you're going to approach different patients and trying to develop, yes, once again, you're going to make mistakes, but if you at least try, um, the sooner you are going to 
develop that and and as you're saying if you could systematize some of that i guess it, that <laughs> you know ways to get them thinking about that too um it could ultimately be more efficient one of the uh the values of this article that you've highlighted uh that i think is nice for your teaching and learning is how they take autonomy and help to dissect it that when people refer to autonomy they may mean completely different things mm -hmm. i mean each of these they've laid out has a different respect for autonomy and so to say oh we uh, uh this is the most respectful of autonomy is actually to say it's respectful of one kind of autonomy and so i don't really use that that word and term uh in uh, in teaching or talking with uh medical clinicians uh, for that very reason, is they have one model in mind of what autonomy is, and they so nicely highlight that uh, different idea of what's a respect of autonomy will take you in substantially different ways, uh, depending on what your commitment is. And if I say to you autonomy, and you say it back to me, we may be starting off at a whole different place than what than if we just get to, I want to respect your right to let me, you know, somebody else choose for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and even in our conversation, we're kind of simplifying a little down to the one healthcare provider or several, even in the case that you mentioned and the patient, but we haven't even, it becomes even a little more complicated because we haven't talked about all the people who like family centered approaches and right. And, and the people who they are talking to and who are influencing them. So um, any other thoughts or I feel like we've covered it pretty well. Like I said, I, I've always, I always return to this article, um, just because it, it's, it's broad enough, concrete enough, but still broad enough that it, um, is very, is still very thought provoking. Yeah. I, I think this is a, a nice way of getting people to really delve into, uh, some of the orthodoxies that they may have been taught about what the one way a doctor ought to behave towards their patient or interact with their patient or have um, this kind of patient-physician relationship, healthcare provider-patient relationship. And I think you point out nicely that is a stepping off point then to say, what's the healthcare team and patient and family and all, all of these kind of dynamics? How do we create the right kind of relational-based communication? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks very much. I, I think um, uh, even the students, you know, they'll really appreciate this too. Um, it's been very informative. So I appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Uh, happy to chat again with you. It was a good uh, conversation. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast brought to you by the Cleveland State Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion. Produced by faculty member Tony Nicoletti in conjunction with the Center for Instructional Technology and Distance Learning. For more information about the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion course offerings, please visit our website at csuohio.edu or call 216-687-3900.